A native of Norfolk, Doug Waller, is a veteran correspondent, author, and lecturer. In almost two decades as a Washington journalist, he covered the Pentagon, Congress, State Department, the White House, and the CIA. From 1994 to 2007, Doug served in Time Magazine's Washington Bureau, first as a correspondent and then as a senior correspondent. At Time, he covered foreign affairs extensively as a diplomatic correspondent traveling throughout Europe, Asia, and the Middle East, as well as the Persian Gulf region. He's reported extensively in the past on Middle East peace negotiations and the wars in Iraq. He came to Time in 1994 from Newsweek, where he reported on major military conflicts from the Gulf War to Somalia to Haiti. Doug has authored or co-authored 10 books, including the critically acclaimed uh, Disciples, the World War II Missions of the CIA Directors Who Fought for Wild Bill Donovan, and Wild Bill Donovan, the Spymaster Who Created the OSS in the Modern American Espionage, uh, which uh, became a New York Times bestseller, a Washington Post Best Book of 2011, and a Wall Street Journal Notable Book of 2011. A great accomplishment, Doug. His most recent book and the subject of today's lecture is Lincoln's Spies, Their Secret War to Save a Nation, copies of which, of course, are available for sale, and I know that Doug would be delighted to sign them for you. Uh, again, we're thrilled for you all to be here with us today. If you would, please join me in a very warm welcome for Doug Waller. Thanks, Jamie. Uh, this is really a return visit for me. I've spent uh, a number of weeks here in the uh, research center uh, researching for different books. Uh, I spent a lot of time during the uh, research for the Lincoln Spies book going through the Elizabeth Van Loo papers, and we'll talk about her in just a minute. For the Wild Bill Donovan paper uh, book, uh, the David K.E. Bruce papers here were extremely valuable. So I kind of think I should get frequent flyer points or something for, <laughs> I don't know whether they give them or, or whatever. I did, uh, I kind of scoped out this audience ahead of time, uh, watched some videos of other authors that have been up here, and discovered that uh, this is usually a pretty smart crew that you can't buffalo. So. Uh, I'm going to start off with a little truth in advertising here. I'm not a Civil War historian. I don't even play one on TV. I covered the CIA, as Jamie mentioned, uh, for a number of years for Newsweek and then Time magazine. And my last two historical bi uh, biographies, as, as he mentioned, were uh, Wild Bill Donovan, who was Franklin Roosevelt's spy master in World War II, and The Disciples, which was about four uh, OSS officers that worked for Donovan that later became CIA directors like Alan Dulles. For my next book, I, I just really decided to switch wars uh, and write an ensemble biography of four Union spies during the Civil War, four of Lincoln's spies. Uh, and I'm really glad I made the switch. When we think of the Civil War, uh, we have this image of Union and Confederate soldiers posing stiffly in Matthew Brady uh, photographs, or of that Ken Burns music in his documentary, that soft music always put me to sleep, I don't know about you, uh, and of mangled bodies strewn across desolate battlefields uh, in mass attacks like Pickett's Charge. And all that happened. But what also happened in this war was a revolution in warfighting technology like the world had never really seen. Things like rifled cannons and muskets that uh, enabled uh, armies to shoot, deliver more accurate and de deadly fire at longer ranges. And railroads that could move men and supplies quickly to the front. And the telegraph that could connect war departments, generals, and far-flung battlefields with very rapid communications. This war also saw uh, uh, a change in how armies maneuvered against each other. Instead of the old uh, Napoleonic tactics of frontal assaults with soldiers packed tightly together, uh, we saw now uh, generals starting to choose flank attacks and loose order tactics so they wouldn't incur those horrendous casualties uh, in each conflict. But commanders quickly discovered that with all these new weapons and all their new tactics, they needed far more accurate information on the, where the enemy lurked ahead of them and how strong that enemy was. 
General Stonewall Jackson uh, boiled it down to four things that he wanted to know before he started a battle, four important pieces of intelligence. Number one, the position of the enemy. You know, where was he out there? Very important information. Number two, the uh, number of troops, the hostile troops you faced, uh, and their movements, also very important information. Number three, the generals in command on the other side, who led their corps, their uh, divisions, their brigades, their regiments. Remember, a good many of these northern and southern generals uh, were classmates at West Point, so they had a pretty good sense of how the leaders on the other side would react in combat. And the fourth thing Jackson wanted to know was the location of the headquarters of the enemy commander. Now, these were important pieces of information. They didn't guarantee uh, a commander uh, success on the battlefield necessarily, uh, but they certainly increased the odds for success, and they could certainly stave off defeat. So what you discover is that beneath the surface of this vast war between the North and the South, a revolution also was occurring in military intelligence collection and the way armies spied on each other. That's really what I found fascinating as I kind of dug deeply into this project. Of course, there was the traditional cloak and dagger work we've seen in previous wars. Each side sent scores of spies uh, into the other's territory to try and steal secrets. In the Civil War, though, the job was made easier because these secret operatives spoke the other side's language and they knew, the, uh, knew its culture. So they weren't dropping into a foreign country uh, with language and customs different from theirs as they did, for example, in World War II. Civil War spies had an easier time blending in and not being noticed by the enemy. Uh, if you were a northern spy, it really wasn't all that hard to fake a southern accent. All right, y'all come. All right. uh, the new war-making technology also ushered in new types of spying. With the advent of the telegraph, signal intelligence uh, became very important in this war. Today, in uh, spy jargon, it's called SIGINT. Back then, it was reading the enemy's messages uh, that were tapped out in Morse code over a line. Each side suspected the other was constantly tapping into what it transmitted, so messages uh, were encrypted using fairly primitive codes. Photography. Photography uh, also was soon found to be a useful spy tool. Photographers joined the Union Army, for example, and covertly took shots of enemy troop encampments in future battlefields. We saw aerial reconnaissance uh, used often in this war. Hydrogen gas-filled balloons, mostly on the Union side, were sent high into the air, as much as high as 1,000 feet, uh, with aeronauts dangling in these wicker baskets that hung below them uh, to scope out the battlefield ahead or to direct artillery fire on a target. These were the forerunners of the spy satellites we have today. During the Civil War, this was considered a pretty high-tech uh, endeavor. Balloonists communicated their observations by shouting to the ground or using flag signals or tapping out messages over a telegraph line uh, strung to a soldier below. A Philadelphia inventor even proposed what a century and a half later would be called an aerial drone. A battery-operated camera attached under a small balloon would be sent up uh, with the camera hooked to a wire to a soldier down below who could activate the uh, shutter with an electrical charge, you know, just like the drones you see in Afghanistan and Iraq. Union officers, though, eventually, a union officer eventually rejected the inventor's idea. He couldn't see how the balloon could keep the camera stable enough to take a clear photo, which was certainly the case back then. For this book, I decided to focus on three men and one woman who spied for the Union. Okay, I did so for several reasons. I found the Union operatives to be actually far more interesting than their Confederate counterparts. Two of my spies were heroes in this war. One of them was a failure, and the fourth spy was an absolute scoundrel. So I had a great mix of characters here. Also, Civil War movies uh, often have the rebels outperforming the Yankees in espionage, but that really wasn't the case. For most of the Civil War, the Yankees had a much more comprehensive and effective intelligence gathering operation than the Confederates ever really fielded. So by the end of the conflict, Ulysses Grant actually had a better count of Robert E. Lee's forces than even Lee had. Yeah. 
The four Lincoln spies who are the subject of this book are Alan Pinkerton, you can see here up there at the top left, uh, Lafayette Baker, uh, top right, uh, George Sharp, bottom left here, and Elizabeth Van Loo. Okay, let's start with Pinkerton up there. Friends believe that Alan Pinkerton was gifted with unusual powers of observation. Born in Scotland in 1819, as a young, young man, he trained to be a cooper. That's a barrel maker. Uh, but he ended up, uh, spending up spending more time uh, uh, as a labor agitator, falling under the spell of Scottish revolutionaries. In 1842, Pinkerton emigrated to, emigrated to the uh, America with his young wife, and eventually ending up in Chicago, where he founded a private detective agency in the mid-1850s and became highly successful at it. Pinkerton hated slavery, and he became a fanatical abolitionist. He, he thought his parents had been atheists, and he considered himself an atheist as well. As a detective, he honed a sixth sense to anticipate criminal activity before it happened. He was stubbornly persistent, refusing to be worn down by adversity. He could be a tiresome prig, however, uh, who harangued employees and friends uh, and relatives about the virtues of honesty, uh, integrity, and courage, and all that kind of good stuff. He was a tyrant at home, completely dominating his wife. He named the three children she bore him without even consulting her. Yeah, pretty tough guy. Um, Pinkerton had dark, brooding eyes set deeply, you can see him kind of there, under a wide brow with a heavy beard that covered his face, save for his upper lip that he occasionally shaved. He didn't hear, but not very often that upper lip was shaved. He was usually dour and humorless, just like he appears in that uh, picture. He was a master, though, uh, he was a master publicist, skilled at uh, promoting his detective business and absolutely shameless about airbrushing his image. In February 1861, on the eve of the Civil War, Pinkerton, who by then had become somewhat famous uh, nationwide as a private eye, launched what amounted to a covert operation to sneak Abraham Lincoln unnoticed in a railroad car through Baltimore. The detective, who happened to be investigating threats to a rail line for a business client at the time, had uncovered evidence that secessionists wanted to assassinate the new president-elect at a stopover in Baltimore to help to keep him from being inaugurated in Washington. Our next spy, Lafayette Baker there on the up, upper right, he was a handsome man. Uh, he had brown hair, a full red beer, beard, and piercing gray eyes that were absolutely uh, hypnotic. And you can kind of see him up there, uh, the way he looks. He was 5 feet 10 inches tall, a muscular 180 pounds. He was agile, almost cat-like uh, in his quick movements, uh, always seemingly restless. Baker was a fine horseman, and he was a crack shot, and he didn't uh, swear or drink alcohol. He was obsessed with Roman history. His idol became Eugene Francois Vidoc, uh, who was this unsavory de uh, detective who helped create France's security service. Baker was as devious as, and manipulating as Vidoc. He was prone to lie about himself, and he had the heart of a sneak thief, according to one profile that was done on him. Born in 1825, Baker's lineage traced back to fighters in the French and Indian War. Fed up with his father, who was an insufferably stern Puritan, Baker renounced God and ran away from his Michigan home in his late teens, largely uneducated, for, save for a little schooling that taught him to read and write. Seemed like a lot of these spies were atheists. I'm not sure why that is. Anyway, for the next 10 years, he drifted from job to job through a dozen states, often having to flee a city after he'd gotten into a gunfight with another man. He finally ended up in Chicago, I mean, in San Francisco by the mid-1850s, joining a vigilante group uh, that rounded up suspected criminals in that very lawless city and hung the ones they thought uh, deserved the death penalty. When the Civil War started, Baker, who was back on the East Coast, rode into Washington, hoping to land a good-paying job with the Union Army. He was outraged when the rebels captured Fort Sumter on April 13, 1861. Baker had no spy training, uh, save for what he might have picked up as a San Francisco vigilante, but he was a fast talker, and he managed to talk General Winfield Scott, the aging Army commander, uh, Union Army commander, into giving him a job as a Secret Service agent. 
Scott, whose nickname, as you know, was Old Fuss and Feathers because he enjoyed uh, military pomp, figured he didn't have much to lose by hiring Baker. So he did. Our next spy is George uh, Sharp, down at the bottom left there. His superiors considered him a natural military leader. He had a magnetic personality that made men want to follow him. He had a balding head, as you can see there, sad eyes and a droopy mustache. Kind of made him look more like a city preacher than a combat commander. But Sharp was, and Sharp was a learned man. He, in his breast pocket he, of his uniform, he kept always a small, well-thumbed book of verse of his, from his favorite poets, which he routinely read to his men. Uh, and they never seemed to mind the recitals. They kind of liked it. Sharp was born in Kingston, New York, a small town on the Hudson River. The son of a wealthy merchant, he received the finest education you could have at the time. He attended elite academies as a youngster. He graduated from Rutgers University with honors. In fact, he delivered the valedictorian address in Latin, which I thought was kind of cool. Uh, and he earned a law degree from Yale University. Before setting up his practice as an attorney in Kingston, Sharp spent four years in Europe uh, studying French in Paris and working as a secretary in the US legations in Vienna and Rome where he learned Italian. When war broke out, he first commanded a company of federal militiamen in the uh, Kingston area, and later he led a volunteer infantry regiment as a colonel. It all prepared Sharp for the most important job he would have as the Union Army's preeminent spy master. Now to our fourth secret agent, Elizabeth uh, Van Loo there on the bottom right. Like Sharp, she too was a child of privilege, but in a very different setting. Elizabeth's father was a wealthy Richmond hardware merchant. Her mother was a highly educated socialite who stocked the library of their mansion in the fashionable Churchill neighborhood with over 600 books. That's a lot of books. Uh, Elizabeth, who developed an early empathy for slaves she witnessed being beaten on Richmond streets, was sent to relatives in Philadelphia to be educated. A governess there lectured her on the abolition of slavery. She returned to Richmond with an even fiercer hatred of human bondage. When her father died in 1842, Elizabeth spent uh, much of her sizable inheritance, which was about $350,000 in today's money, helping family slaves flee north uh, or secretly paying the salaries of blacks who remained in her mansion. She also bought other slaves on the market block to set them free. She was a short woman uh, who had been quite beautiful in her youth, but when the Civil War started, Van Loo was in her 40s and unmarried, and she was considered enriched by Richmond society to be something of an old maid. She loved her state. She always spoke of Virginians in her soft Southern accent as our people, uh, although that love would be sorely tested in the future. She wore dark blonde hair, always in tight curls, and it looks uh, black there or brown, but it was actually dark blonde uh, and always in tight curls. She had a thin, nervous-looking face with high cheekbones, a pointed nose, and sparkling blue eyes that bore into anyone facing her stare. She was almost ad always attired in the antebellum style with a black silk dress like she's wearing right there and a bonnet whose ribbons tied under her chin in the front. She was clever to the point of almost unearthly brilliance, friends said, and she was decidedly feisty. She could be acid-tongued and scalding in her contempt of people uh, whose political views clashed with their own very strong sense of right from wrong. Elizabeth acknowledged that it had made her life intensely earnest, as she put it. Yet, when she thought she could have, it could help her have her way, she could be gentle and flattering. She knew how to cultivate powerful men to get what she wanted. When Union prisoners began pouring into Richmond, many of them housed in filthy tobacco uh, barns or warehouses that became makeshift jails, Elizabeth cajoled Confederate authorities to let her bring meals and books to the POWs and to minister to the uh, Union soldiers who were ill or wounded. It soon made her a pariah in her city. Neighbors shunned her. Richmond newspapers published dark warnings uh, that she should be showing compassion for Southern soldiers, not those hated Yankees. A Ku Klux Klan-like organization called the White Caps sent her a uh, menacing note threatening to burn down her mansion. But this was, woman was a unionist who could not be intimidated. 
Soon, Elizabeth Van Loo began heating, heading up a large and powerful spy ring in the capital of the Confederacy. Now, there's a fifth character uh, in this story about Lincoln's spies, and that's Abraham Lincoln himself. Honest Abe was the image his campaign created for him. Incidentally, Lincoln didn't even like the nickname Honest Abe. He preferred to be called Mr. Lincoln. He was one of the least experienced men ever to assume the presidency, but he was hardly a neophyte when it came to the dark arts of subterfuge and intrigue. During his brief brush with military service in the 1832 Black Hawk War, Lincoln spent actually several weeks in a unit called the Independent Spy Company, which carried out reconnaissance operations. He often wrote newspaper columns under aliases to attack opponents. He secretly, secretly bought a German language newspaper to print puff pieces on him for that very important voting block in Illinois. And during his race for the presidency, he was a careful reader and evaluator of political intelligence. Once in the White House, Lincoln ordered General Scott to deliver him daily intelligence reports on the enemy and had freelancers all over the country send him information on the rebels and their sympathizers. He prodded his military commanders to accept new warfighting technologies like balloons for aerial reconnaissance. He had no qualms about launching risky covert operations against the South. He found subversion and propaganda useful tools to undermine the border states that had joined the Confederacy and to keep the ones that remained in the Union under his tight control. And Lincoln could be ruthless when he felt he had to be, suspending the writ of habeas corpus, allowing arbitrary arrests of thousands, and shuttering newspapers considered hostile to administration war aims. Clearly, this was a president who knew how to keep a secret and how to operate in secret. Okay? So what did our four spies doing, uh, do during the war? We'll start with Alan Pinkerton. He became the spy master for General George McClellan, the charismatic young Napoleon, as he was called, the commander of the all-important Army of the Potomac, uh, and at first the entire army. McClellan was the man Lincoln and the North had high hopes for uh, defeating the South quickly and bringing this awful rebellion to an end. But this young Napoleon had a huge ego and an even bigger uh, uh, messiah complex. He turned out to be better at organizing and training and parading an army than he did at fighting with it. Alan Pinkerton brought about 20 employees to Washington from his Chicago detective agency. Uh, he recruited more agents from the Army and other sources, and soon he was operating on a $6,500 a month budget, which was a lot of money back then. Pinkerton used the cover name E.J. Allen in all his communications, and worried about security, he refused to divulge to Army finance officers the names of his operatives, listing them on expense reports only by their initials, and the finance officers willingly paid uh, out a lot of money to uh, just a bunch of initials. Pinkerton used women to infiltrate rebel social circles. He recruited runaway slaves to collect information. He infiltrated spies into Richmond. He sent McClellan lengthy intelligence reports on what those spies found. And he succeeded in breaking up a Confederate espionage ring in Washington. But he ended up being a failure in military, as a military intelligence officer. Pinkerton and his, and his agents had no military training or the experience they needed to effectively collect and evaluate intelligence on an enemy army. They were basically amateurs at war. His detectives were accustomed to slowly uh, working cases until they had enough evidence to bring a suspect to trial. But military intelligence collection had to move far more quickly than that. And... Pinkerton violated a cardinal rule of intelligence of an intelligence officer. He told McClellan what the general wanted to hear, not what his boss needed to hear. Okay? That's a big difference, and it's a really big deal. Spy masters, the good ones, uh, that is, have to be unbiased. They have to be scrupulous in assembling accurate information, and they have to be willing to deliver uncomfortable truths to their leaders. And Pinkerton failed to do this. McClellan was convinced the rebel army had, he faced always outnumbered him. He became practically delusional about it, and he peppered Lincoln with uh, memos demanding more troops uh, before he could move out against the Confederates. 
Instead of setting his boss straight, Pinkerton stoked McClellan's delusions. He fed him wildly inaccurate intelligence reports that intentionally inflated the number of rebel troops that Union General faced. But higher numbers were exactly what uh, McClellan wanted to hear. And even if Pinkerton had reported more accurate numbers that were lower, McClellan likely would have just ignored him. McClellan, by nature, was a timid commander, afraid of winning on the battlefield for fear of losing. Pinkerton's intelligence reports only made him more timid. The Chicago detective revered McClellan, and at one point he even spied on Lincoln for political intelligence he thought might be useful for the general. Okay, you're not supposed to do that as an intelligence director. <laughs> Lincoln soon realized that his young Napoleon had a chronic case of the slows, as he put it. He fired McClellan in early November 1862 after the bloody Antietam battle. Pinkerton followed his boss out the door and resigned as the Potomac Army's intelligence chief. Now to our next spy, Lafayette Baker. Think of Lafayette Baker as kind of like uh, Lincoln's J. Edgar Hoover, except with a couple of differences. Number one, Baker really didn't have much interaction with Lincoln as Hoover had uh, with uh, his presidents. Even though Baker bragged to others that he and Lincoln were real tight, but that really wasn't the case. And second, Baker was far more corrupt. He ended up working as a secret agent for Edwin Stanton, the very efficient and very ruthless war secretary who became Lincoln's czar for internal security. Baker's operation eventually grew to some 30 full-time detectives who did more counter-espionage and criminal investigations than actually collecting intelligence. Simple crime back then was considered a national security threat as grave to the Union as espionage. So secret service organizations like Baker's and Pinkerton's often spent more time chasing smugglers, horse thieves, draft dodgers, crooked contractors, and counterfeiters as they did at real cloak and dagger work. Baker set up his headquarters in an old two-story brick building on Pennsylvania Avenue near the Capitol. A plaque hung in his office uh, proclaiming death to traitors. I thought it's kind of cool. Uh, he bragged that his ideal operative was someone who had been sh who was shrewd, courageous, and couldn't be bribed. But his men, many of them former California vigilantes skilled with knives, pistols, and killing without remorse, hardly lived up to that standard. Baker enjoyed shadowing suspects himself and setting up his own stings to catch them. He led raids into Maryland to break up uh, rebel courier pipelines that carried mail and merchandise to the South. Baker enjoyed interrogating suspects. For example, tapping a woman's breast to see if he heard the sound of tin being hit, it would indicate she concealed contraband drugs uh, uh, for the South in the top of her corset. I'm not making this up, folks. It really happened, okay? <laughs> One time, he hacked a suspected Confederate spy to death with a rebel's own Bowie knife. You know, this is a tough cookie. But soon, reports and complaints began accumulating that Baker and his detectives were abusing their authority. Baker's agents became notorious for routinely seizing suspects without warrants and jailing them for weeks. Washington officials also wondered how Baker, on a salary that amounted to only about $7 a day, maintained such a lavish lifestyle, staying in first-class hotels, a wad of cash always in his, pack, his pocket, and riding around Washington dressed gaudily and on top of an expensive uh, black stallion fit for a general. Well, he did so by the old-fashioned way, by abusing his expense account from the secret funds that Stanton provided and by ingeniously finding ways to shake the money tree on many of the raids and arrests he carried out. Okay, for example, blockade runners uh, who had been caught found they could soon be released after they paid Baker or one of his detectives a bribe. Baker's biggest intelligence failure, though, came with the assassination of Abraham Lincoln. Guarding the President of the United States was not specifically Baker's responsibility, but uncovering threats to him certainly was. Baker liked to brag that there were no hostile agents in Washington that he or his men didn't know about, but that was clearly not the case, particularly not with John Wilkes Booth, who frequently gathered with his gang at Mary Surratt's boarding house on H Street in Washington, just nine blocks from Baker's headquarters. 
operated right under his nose. Baker redeemed himself when his de detectives, accompanied by a cavalry detachment, captured and killed Booth at the Garrett Farm in Virginia. Incidentally, Baker was outraged when he had to share the reward money for Booth's capture with the other men on the raid at Garrett Farm. Now, let's turn to our uh, third spy, George Sharp. When General Joseph Fighting Joe Hooker took over command of the Army of the Potomac in January 1863, he uh, summoned Sharp to his headquarters after he learned that the New York officer spoke French. Hooker wanted him to translate a book written in French on that country's secret service. Sharp did it quickly, which impressed Hooker. So this general recruited this regimental commander to be a spy master for the Army of the Potomac. Hooker gave the espionage service Sharp created a bland cover name. They called it the Bureau of Military Information, which conveniently obscured its true intent. Uh, uh, true intent. Incidentally, that's really a common practice of the CIA and other intelligence organizations today to give uh, bland names for different front organizations to maintain their cover. Although Sharp had seen combat and he was well versed in the military and what kind of information an army needed, he knew nothing about spying uh, when he took this job. But Sharp proved to be actually a surprisingly adept at cloak and dagger work. In some of his correspondence, he began to use the code name Colonel Strait, and many of his informants never knew they were working for a Union espionage uh, uh, agency. This, in today's uh, CIA jargon, is called a false flag or, uh, operation, and it was done, it's done quite a bit today. Sharp eventually had a force of some 70 agents, many of whom infiltrated into enemy territory wearing rebel uniforms and carrying thousands of Confederate dollars for bribes. He set up a large letter-opening operation. He, his men captured bags full of Confederate mail exchanged between Virginia and Maryland, and they read their contents for hints on rebel troop movements. In what amounted to aerial propaganda, one of Sharp's officers even rigged a kite to drop uh, leaflets over enemy lines, offering rebels money to defect. And the operation proved uh, very successful. They had a lot of rebel defectors by it. Sharp also wasn't shy about using torture to get uh, the truth out of rebel deserters he thought were lying to his interrogators. Sometimes they were tied up by their thumbs, uh, which the prisoners found particularly painful when it was applied for a long time. But more important, with Hooker's blessing, Sharp pioneered what spy agencies today call all, today call all source intelligence. Do we have any CIA or intelligence folks in here? <laughs> you wouldn't raise your hand anyway, but uh, okay. All source intelligence, that's an important term. Sharp now raked in all the intelligence coming into the Army of the Potomac. Not only the reports from his spies, but also the reports from the interrogations of rebel uh, deserters and prisoners, the reports from aeronauts in his balloons, from the signal officers intercepting enemy telegraph and signal flag messages, and the dispatches from cavalry scouts. Sharp's officers then sorted, synthesized, and analyzed all this flood of information and produced for Union com commanders highly accurate intelligence uh, reports with the most comprehensive picture of the enemy that they'd ever had. Now, it sounds like a pretty obvious way to run a spy agency, but this all-source intelligence wasn't done before Sharp. His Bureau of Military Information was a major innovation. It was decades ahead of its time. Sharp's men, for example, produced uh, leather-bound 14-page booklets that Army commanders could carry in their coat pocket uh, with accurate information on the regiments, brigades, and divisions of Lee's force. <laughs> His estimate of the number of men in Lee's army at one point was only off by one quarter of one percent from the actual number that Lee had. That's a truly remarkable record. Sharp's best agent in the field became Elizabeth Van Lu, our fourth spy over there. This old maid, who everyone dismissed as a harmless Yankee lover, just too free with her opinions, moved quickly from helping Union war prisoners in Richmond to organizing a sophisticated spy ring in the capital that Confederate security agents were never able to crack. Lee's spy network, network eventually was churning out an average of three intelligence reports a week for Sharp. They covered a wide range of subjects. 
Richmond's defenses, the condition of Lee's army, the troop movements between the Confederate capital and the Shenandoah Valley, economic conditions in the city, the morale of its citizens. Along with her messages, Van Loo also sent Grant editions of the Richmond papers, plus a rose she picked from her garden for each delivery. Grant thought the rose was kind of a nice, nice touch for his breakfast table. <clears throat> Van Loo's Churchill Mansion became her spy ring's base station. She had several dozen agents and couriers working for her. Each one carried a carved peach seed uh, that identified them as a member of her network, which I thought was kind of neat. Many of her operatives were farmers or storekeepers or factory workers she had recruited. Others were African-American servants who worked for Van Loo or for other ring members. Her spies also included a clerk in the Confederate Adjutant General's office who provided her with strength reports on the rebel units. She had a mole in the engineering department who sent her blueprints for rebel defenses around Richmond and Petersburg. In their intelligence summaries for Grant and other Union generals, Sharp and his aides rarely mentioned Van Loo by her name. She often went by the code name Babcock, uh, or simply referred to in government documents as a lady in Richmond, and her ring was called our friends in Richmond. At night in her mansion, Van Loo placed sensitive papers such as agent reports and her own intelligence notes at her bedside table to destroy quickly uh, if she had to or to quickly hide them in other places in the mansion like her library. Documents there could be stored in the pilasters of the library's iron fireplace that reached uh, partway up uh, to its mantel. Two bronze couchant lions with secret cavities in them sat atop the pilasters. They were an ideal hiding place. Elizabeth had several ways to write messages to her union handlers. She could write letters to a fictitious uncle signing her name as Eliza A. Jones and send them through the regular mail that was actually allowed to pass between the South and the North. But between the lines of innocuous family news, uh, she would dip her pen into a bottle of clear liquid and write out in invisible ink uh, the real message she wanted to deliver. Okay? A union officer then on the other, uh, at the other end would apply a mild acid and a heat to the paper to, uh, to expose uh, the secret report that, uh, that he wanted to read. Other times, she didn't use the mail system uh, and had couriers deliver intelligence to, uh, reports to the Union Army. She would encipher her messages using a simple key that Union officers provided her, which was a small sheet of square paper, not very big, uh, that contained a chart to convert letters to a number code. Elizabeth kept that key folded tightly uh, and tucked into her watch case. As a further security measure, Van Loo often tore her encrypted notes uh, into several pieces and sent each piece by different couriers on different routes to the Federals. Her family servants, who acted as couriers, sometimes put messages in scraped out eggshells that they hid in a basket of real eggs, uh, or uh, they hid them among the paper patterns that se seamstresses carried out. The Van Loon family had a vegetable farm near the Henrico uh, Richmond County line, or the Richmond Henrico County line below the city. That farm became the first of five stops on a windy route uh, along the James River where couriers could drop off uh, messages for the Yankees or pick up uh, instructions from Sharp on the type of intelligence he needed. George Sharp uh, would later boast that whatever Grant wanted in the way of information from the Capitol, Van Loo's ring could provide it. This was an espionage triumph, and it was truly re not remarkable for the Union. So with that, I'll stop. Any questions or comments or anything else on your mind? Or <laughs> oh, we got, and we have someone here with a microphone, a roaming microphone. I guess regarding Sharp and Van Lu, what's your take on how they affected really the, ultimate, the outcome of the war? I mean, what did they really have a definitive impact on on, on that? Yeah, and it's a good question. Uh, ultimately, I think as we all got taught in high school, what won the war for for the North was you know overwhelming uh, advantage in men and supplies and equipment and industry. And they basically just wore down the South. 
and what became a largely a war of attrition. But uh, intelligence had an effect at key pivot points. Okay, for example, uh, when Van Lu was sending uh, reports to Grant on the movement of uh, Confederate forces from Richmond to the Shenandoah Valley or from the Shenandoah Valley back to Richmond, the purpose of it was that whenever Lee uh, was trying to reinforce his Shenandoah for forces, which were his guarding or reaping his breadbasket, uh, Grant would then attack with more forces in Richmond to make him pay a price. When Lee moved forces from the Shenandoah to Richmond, uh, the, uh, the forces in the Shenandoah would be uh, attacked by the Union uh, Army more, more forcefully. Van Lu pro provided a lot of good intelligence for that. Uh, she also provided him a lot of intelligence on if any forces were moving south through uh, down to Atlanta to reinforce uh, Sherman. Uh, Sharp in the Battle of Gettysburg uh, had some key pieces of intelligence that were very critical. After the second day, by, he was doing very, very accurate uh, uh, counts of the enemy uh, forces down to the uh, regiment level uh, and was interviewing hundreds and hundreds of uh, prisoners and deserters for it and was able to tell uh, General Meade that uh, Lee was, as one of the generals said, had been nicked real badly, uh, was really wounded real badly by Gettysburg, and there were no reinforcements, save for Pickett's small division uh, that were going to come uh, with him. Meade, on the other hand, had a, a large reserve there. It hadn't even fought uh, in, in the Gettysburg fight at that point. So it convinced Lee that I'm going to stand my ground uh, and let Lee, Lee make another you know, charge at me. Uh, and I've got the advantage, which Meade didn't really uh, see clearly at that point. So there's two examples. I mean, there's examples on, on the reverse where uh, Pinkerton provided misleading intelligence that, say, reinforced uh, McClellan's uh, timidity at key points uh, in key battles. Uh, but again, like, like any uh, World War II, World War I is the same way. It's, it was the concentration of uh, forces you know, that won the war. World War II, it was, you know, the fact that, you know, uh, it was the Army Quartermaster Corps, it was the Navy Supply Corps, and the maritime agency that could ship more men and supplies to the front than the Germans uh, ever could, uh, you know, uh, field. Uh, it was the fact that Soviet mothers and American mothers could produce more uh, men of uh, draft age to throw, throw into the battle than German mothers ever could. Uh, intelligence has an effect on it. But you know, anytime you see in a book or an article, you know that key operation that run the war, won the war, yeah, you'll see those a lot. You know, don't believe them, you know, or be real skeptical of it. Uh, you mentioned that uh, Bet Van Lu had uh, uh, people who worked under her mm -hmm. and would communicate information to her among whom were uh, people like Mary Bowser. Right. And can you comment on how Mary Bowser was so effective in her espionage work, at, particularly at the Confederate White House, when uh, the white males who uh, belonged to the Confederate White House uh, upper echelon did not think that, she, that this woman was capable of either writing or even listening cogently to what mm -hmm. they were saying. Yeah, uh, Mary Bowser uh, was a mulatto. Uh, she, uh, uh, Elizabeth Van Lu, almost became like a big sister to her. Uh, she was sent to Philadelphia uh, to be educated, so a highly educated uh, African-American, which in uh, the South and Richmond was against the law to do. Uh, she came back eventually. Uh, returned uh, to Richmond from Liberia, where she'd been sent initially. And she was a key uh, courier for uh, Elizabeth Van Lu. Uh, at one point, she hid out in a closet in the Confederate Senate to listen to the, uh, a draft debate, a debate over uh, draft and whether they should draft African Americans, which was very important information that Grant was interested in. Uh, she would go out very often and do her own reconnaissance work, and she was in on uh, all the uh, or a good many of the planning sessions at the man mansion at Churchill. 
there's the story, though, that uh, Van Lu infiltrated, uh, and I think you kind of alluded to it, uh, Mary Bowser, actually her maiden name was Mary Richmond, into the uh, Confederate White House where she listened in on uh, uh, conversations uh, Jefferson Davis had with his family and listened in on meetings and everything and report, reported back to uh, uh, Elizabeth Van Lu on it. You know, it's an exciting story. It's been told and retold over the generations. There's only one problem with it. Uh, there's no evidence to back it up as credible. Okay, what really happened, and uh, Mary Richards uh, admitted to it in, in several speeches in New York after the war. She was very candid. Was that one time she was sent to the. Uh, uh, Confederate White House to pick up some laundry. They let her in. She managed somehow to wander into Jefferson Davis's office, uh, realizing she was in an important place, started kind of looking around and maybe picking up papers and everything. Jeff Davis walked in on her uh, and asked her, you know, what the hell are you doing here? And she kind of, she was very good at dissembling and uh, making it appear that it was totally innocent. Davis, who could not, like many Southern leaders and like many Americans back then, could not conceive the, of a, uh, an African-American being smart enough to actually be a spy, just simply shoot her off, and she went home. That was really her only time in the uh, Confederate mansion. What happened, though, uh, after the war was one of, uh, oh, and the other story, though, has been perpetuated to this day. Uh, you know, the CIA and their uh, reports on the Civil War, they've written a lot of reports on Civil War espionage, uh, carries the, uh, the Mary Richards being infiltrated in the Confederate White House story. The U.S. Army uh, Intelligence Center's uh, Hall of Fame cites Mary Richards for this uh, as a, one of the top spies. Uh, the whole source for that story was a nine-year-old girl named Annie Hall, who was one of... Uh, uh, Van Lu's nieces, who 50 years after the fact told a magazine reporter she heard uh, that uh, Mary Richards had been infiltrated into the Confederate White House and provided him some details. The magazine reporter then took that and dialed it all up uh, and fleshed out a full-scale operation here. Now, think a second, okay. Do you, how, do you, were, you a, were you given privy to details uh, when you were nine years old, something as sensitive as that, and would you even remember at nine years old exactly where you were? And would you recall it in such detail 50 years later? I don't think so. Uh, there's no documents in the Confederate record, uh, in Union Confederate records, and I've been through uh, a good many of them uh, in the National Archives uh, in the operational records uh, that are published. Uh, nothing that even suggests this. And even though uh, Van Lu uh, got all her records from the Union Army and destroyed them. Uh, the Army then, as the Army now, does everything in duplicate and triplicate, and you can find references everywhere, and there's nothing to it. Uh, but this story has gotten told and retold over the years, so you can find in some books today just details about this, excuse me, details about this uh, elaborate operation. Uh, when I was a journalist in Washington, we always called this a story that was too good to check out. Uh, and it really was. So it didn't happen. Sorry. <laughs> so. Thank you for being here today. Was Elizabeth Thien Liu ever recognized for her work publicly after the war? Oh, yeah, she was recognized, but it wasn't in the right way. Uh, she became, and, and it's not unusual for that to happen with uh, spies, for example, that spied for the U.S. Uh, part of the German resistance. Uh, she was treated very harshly after the war. She was considered a pariah uh, until the day she died. Uh, Grant made her postmaster, postmistress, excuse me, of uh, Richmond, which is a very uh, powerful uh, and lucrative position. Uh, she, uh, though, had spent most of her fortune helping out African Americans, giving money to relatives and other charities. Uh, so she was nearly broke, and she was really broken alone. Uh, when her mother died, they didn't—they weren't able to get enough uh, people to be pallbearers, and so the servants in the house uh, had to do it, and they were harassed by uh, neighbors because they helped bury her mother. Uh, the uh, 
she finally had Massachusetts friends uh, who helped her out financially. She, she, she was you know, destitute and was selling furniture in, in her mansion at Church Hill. Uh, she couldn't sell the mansion. It was considered haunted you know, or you know, bad property. You know, kids would go by and, and yell, uh, yell things at her. Uh, she, uh, uh, but the Massachusetts friends, these were actually relatives of men she had helped out uh, in, the, uh, uh, in, the, in the prisons, uh, came to her aid with some uh, financial assistance. Uh, when she died, uh, she was buried in Choctaw Cemetery. Am I saying, I'm, okay, I'm not saying. Uh, and incidentally, she was buried vertically uh, because they didn't have enough room in the cemetery to bury, bury people horizontally. And there was no grave marker, there was no money for a grave marker for it. Finally, her friends in, Ma uh, in Massachusetts uh, bought and sent down a giant uh, granite uh, gravestone that recognized her, uh, uh, what she'd done, and you know, recognized this as her burial site. And that's it. Yeah, it's really sad, but it's not unusual for spies, uh, you know, former spies. Yep. Oh, there we go. So out of curiosity, I was curious that uh, Pinkerton's name is a common s uh, security system now called mm -hmm. Pinkerton's. Any chance that they're related or named after him, perchance? Oh, no, there, there is the Pinkerton Agency. Uh, it's part of a, uh, a larger firm. It's headquartered in Michigan, and it specializes, as it did before, in international security work uh, around uh, around the world. has has offices around the world. Very very successful company, uh, still is. I mean, Pinkerton, after the war, uh, he he did some crime cases for uh, the Union Army, uh, ferreted out corruption. Uh, in some of the occupied territory down south, which he was actually fairly good at. He specialized in that. He went back to Chicago and built his uh, agency into a multi-million dollar organization. He was you know, a wealthy man. Uh, in the late 1800s, I, I think 1880s or something, I, I don't have the exact date, but it's in the book, uh, he was getting old and feeble and uh, was walking out of his Chicago uh, home at one point and tripped on a sidewalk and hit his jaw on the edge of the sidewalk uh, and he contracted gangrene and died. Yeah, it was kind of a tough way to go. We have time for one last question. Hi, uh, um, back to Elizabeth Van Lu. Mm -hmm. I've wondered um, about her mansion, which is no longer there, and there was a school there Correct. Right. Um, do you know what went into, um, was it the fact that she didn't have the money to, to keep it, you know, um, to keep it viable, or was it torn down as a revenge against her, or do you have any? I, uh, she tried to sell it after the war at different points, but she couldn't get any takers uh, for it. Uh, she put up a for sale sign. And I think afterwards, uh, after she died, they cleaned out all the furniture. Uh, actually, it was sent to Massachusetts, sent north, uh, because they thought they could get a better auction price up there. But they only got $2,000 uh, for the furniture. The, uh, there were several things that happened to the mansion in the intervening years. Eventually, it was torn down. I think for a while, it was a parking lot. And then it may, uh, there is, there's a school there now. Uh, but as I say, uh, the, by, you know, this was a symbol. Everybody knew this was where Elizabeth Van Lu, the traitor to her cause, had lived, and uh, they just couldn't get a sales price on it. So, you know, and it was interesting. After she died, reporters went through the mansion to look for the secret hiding places, like in the attic, where she hid uh, Union prisoners on the run, trying to get back to north, back, back north. Uh, so it became kind of a, you know an amusement attraction in some ways. Great.